And we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders. And if you're new here, we're um, do our best to preach from the text, so it's helpful to have the text open so you can follow along and you can go back home and uh, better serve your memory to uh, remember what was highlighted in the text and help you move through uh, the points that we are trusting that God is making to each of us this morning. So we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 28 and we'll move towards John chapter 1. My grandmother's name was Florence Marcaselli. It's a good Italian name. And she was the daughter of Italian immigrants. And sometime after her death, my aunt, her daughter, decided to do a little family tree, a little, you know, ancestor kind of research. And she found out where the Marcaselli name came from, more or less in an area or a region in Italy. She was married to somebody in the Marines, and at one point they were stationed in Italy. So having done this research and understanding, hey, this is the general area where the Marcaselli family is from, she went and decided to say, well, let's see if I can dig up a Marcaselli. And she had some old photographs that had come out of her grandmother's house, her mother and grandmother's house. Some of the people in the photographs, sometimes she knew, other people she didn't know, but they're all connected to the Marcasellis. And so she goes to this general area, and she just starts knocking on doors, trying to find a Marcaselli. And she had some sort of broken Italian, and she had a little spiel, and she wasn't getting too far until she came to this one house, and a woman opened the door. And in her broken English, she re-explained what she was trying to do. She's trying to find somebody connected to the Marcasellis. And after an explanation, she pulled out this big photograph with three or four different people in the photograph. And the woman nodded and smiled and then went back into her house and then returned with the exact same photograph. You're a Marcaselli. And so a few days later, they had a big party, and all the Marcasellis came. And here's my aunt going, I guess these are all my relatives. You know, I don't know who they are, and they don't know me. We can hardly communicate. But we have the photo, and you have the photo, so somehow we're connected. Isn't that amazing? You see, when you're, when you're trying to tell someone's story, where's the best place to start? You start with somebody's birth. When we're trying to tell the story of Jesus, can we just start with, well, Luke chapter 1 or Matthew chapter 1, and here's Jesus' birth. Some wise men came and some shepherds and angels. Well, no, because there's a, there's a historical momentum. There's this, all this movement in the Old Testament that's leading towards the birth of Christ, much like there's a, a momentum even in our own lives. And so that's the question we're trying to ask and answer in this Advent series. When, you, when you're talking about Jesus, where do you begin? And we saw last week when Jesus was asked about his own life, sort of in an odd way, in Matthew, I mean in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus, he, when, when he gives his own autobiography, he doesn't start, well, I was born 
30 years ago. Uh, he starts back on the very first page of the Old Testament. And he starts in the Old Testament and he walks these few disciples through how you could see Jesus in the Old Testament. So when you get to him in the New Testament, you say, yeah, that's the real thing. You can think of the Old Testament as like a book of shadows. And you can see the shadow and say, well, it must look something like this. But in the New Testament, it's the reality of that shadow. They have met the thing that's been casting this shadow back into the Old Testament. And last week, we looked back at this picture from Abraham and Isaac. And this week, we're going to take a look at Jacob. The, the three people that God most frequently associates himself with and his name with in the Old Testament or from the Old Testament are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a pretty uh, common reoccurring, re reoccurring refrain. Abraham is the father. Father Abraham had many sons. Probably three or four of you know that, that little vacation Bible school. How many know that? Father Abraham had many sons. I won't sing it for you, but it'll ruin your memory. But... Father Abraham had many sons, and one of his names was Isaac. And then Isaac had a son, and his name was Jacob. Exodus chapter 3, when Moses finds the burning bush, God says, Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 1 Kings 18 Elisha on Mount Carmel. Remember him against all these wicked prophets and they're trying to call down heaven onto this uh, altar. At the time of sacrifice, Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O oh Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Acts chapter 3, Peter on his way to the temple heals a man. People are asking questions of how this happened. Peter says, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? It was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you were reading through uh, up until this particular chapter, chapter 28, and you'd read some about the life of Abraham, if you were here last week and remember us talking about Abraham you, you realize that although Abraham's not perfect, he has an incredible faith. I mean, one that you would want to hold on to for yourself. So when you look at Abraham and you just sort of from your viewpoint, you say, well, this is somebody I could see God associating himself with. Here is a man who exercised tremendous faith. But when you look at Isaac, you, you have a hard time finding just one redeeming quality. Even if you're trying to be charitable, I mean, when you, I'm sorry, Jacob, when you, when you come to Jacob, you just don't see anything that you'd think, well, this, is, this would be maybe one of the reasons why God would want to associate himself with Jacob. Jacob is actually a very easy person for us to associate ourselves with. It's very difficult for me to associate myself with Abraham because he was a man of such unqualified faith. But when I look at Jacob and see of all his faults, I go, yeah, I recognize that. Where do I recognize that? Oh, that's me. So when we look at Jacob, it's very easy to say, well, that looks a lot like me. We read in Genesis chapter 25, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, gives birth to twin boys, Jacob and Esau. 
And God comes to Rebekah and gives these, this promise. Those are two nations in your womb. One shall be stronger and the other than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So Esau was the oldest, and Jacob was the younger, whom he eventually served. Esau, as we read, was loved by Isaac, the father, and Jacob was loved by Rebekah, the mother. Esau was a sportsman. He liked the outdoors, but he was hot-tempered. Jacob was a mama's boy. Not just a quiet man who lived around uh, the camp, which would be a fine quality, but somebody who really was manipulated by his mother and couldn't make decisions on his own. She had to somehow come in and manipulate what was going on in the situation. And he was deceptive. In fact, his name means deceiver. And Jacob lived up to his name. Most of you are familiar with the story, Genesis 25 or Genesis 27, where, where Jacob robs his brother from his birthright, robs his, his uh, brother from his blessing. Remember, he tricks his father uh, into going in and getting this blessing. He fixes this meal, and the father, poor Isaac, he's blind, he's dying, and he's trying to give away this blessing, and there he is on his deathbed, and his youngest son comes in and lies to him. The last thing... Jacob does is lie to his father and he steals this blessing and Esau is understandably upset so in Genesis chapter 27 verse 41 Esau makes this promise the days of mourning for my father are approaching and then I will kill my brother Jacob and so when you reach chapter 28, you're not surprised that Jacob's running away. Jacob is not a very confrontational type person. He's very deceptive. He likes to move in when people can't see what's going on, steal things and move out. He's not somebody who wants to meet things head on. And so he understands that Esau is stronger and would put him to death. And so he's running away. He's leaving the promised land. He's going back to where Abraham started in Genesis chapter 12. In fact, if you look at verse 10 in chapter 28, Jacob left Beersheba, that's in Israel, modern-day Israel, and went toward Haran. That's back to where Abraham started. So you're meant to understand when you read that verse, Jacob's life is going backwards. That's the geographical clue. He's He's been given these promises. It's been given to his mom to say, hey, he's going to be the seed. He's going to be the one that I'm working through. But he just took life on his own terms. He, he didn't want to have any regard for God, so he grabbed a hold of it himself. And now he's leaving the promised land. He's going, his whole life's going backwards. He's going back to where the whole thing started, not where he should be. He's completely disregarded the God of his father and his grandfather. He's stolen everything that's been valuable. And he's leaving. And really, it's been a disaster. So we want to look at this particular passage in these three parts. Jacob's condition. Jacob's dream. And then Jacob, the gate of heaven, and Jesus. So we want to look at Jacob's condition. Then we want to see this dream that he has and ask what's going on in this dream. 
And then he ends up after the dream saying, this is the gate of heaven. And then we'll see how that moves us towards Jesus in John chapter 1. So Jacob's condition, verses uh, 10 and 11. The writer paints such a, a vivid picture. Jacob is leaving Beersheba and going back to Haran. He's, his life is moving backwards. He comes to a certain place. He stays there at night because the, the sun is setting. He takes a stone. He puts it underneath his head and then he, he goes to sleep. It's a picture uh, meant to help you see just how low and how far away Jacob has become. He comes to a certain place. I mean, here at this point in the passage, the writer doesn't even give you a name. It's just some random place. In other words, Jacob's nowhere. He's just nowhere. He's nowhere of any importance. He just His whole life is going backwards, and where he just happens to be tonight is it's nowhere important. And then like, like a good playwright, the sun is set. You know, when you see a good play, all the visual cues are highlighting what's happening in the actual story. And so here he is, he's come to some place and he's nowhere. And what's happening? The sun is setting. It's not just setting physically, it's, it's setting on Jacob. It's, it's like the, the writer is trying to say what it feels like is heaven itself is, is closed off. It's become dark to Jacob. And finally... To just say he doesn't have anything, he's, he's nowhere, heaven seems closed, and he has nothing of value, he has to pull up a stone for a pillow. I mean, how desperate do you have to be to use a stone for a pillow? I mean, use your arm, you know, pull off your shoe. I mean, almost anything's better than a stone as a pillow. But again, the author's trying, the writer's trying to say, I just want you to see how desperate the condition that Jacob's in. He, he's nowhere. His life is going backwards. He doesn't have anything. And it it feels like a darkness has come over Jacob that even heaven itself is closed off to Jacob. And then one more key point here is just notice this about Jacob. He doesn't appear to know that he's in this desperate condition. I mean, when you read the passage, he doesn't say... Well, and when Jacob put his head down on the stone, he said a little prayer, Lord, help me. He doesn't seem to be aware of it at all. He's nowhere. He has nothing. Heaven's closed off, and he just doesn't seem to care. So that's the picture. That's the condition that Jacob is in. Perhaps you felt that way at some point in your life. And then Jacob has the dream, beginning in verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder and set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to the heavens. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, or probably better said, above him, above Jacob. And he says to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and of the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie will be given to you, And to your offspring, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised 
you. So you can see a couple of things here, what J- Jacob saw. It's all highlighted by this word, behold. It's the writer's way to say, hey, pay attention. Whenever you see that word, that's the, that's the verbal cue to say, wake up. All eyes on this thing, behold. And he says it three different times, and we can see what he says. Behold. First one, there was a ladder set up on earth, and this ladder reached from the earth up into the heavens. And we don't want to think of a ladder like just a little A-frame ladder or a ladder that you might see dropped out of a helicopter that you would sort of climb up to get into the helicopter. The better picture, the better Hebrew word is like a staircase. Think of a, a grand staircase descending out of heaven onto the earth, and angels are ascending and descending on it. A staircase that's been built and actually reaches the heavens. What are you supposed to remember if you've been reading through Genesis at this point? Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. But this time man was trying to build a a staircase. Man was trying to get up to God. And so Jacob has this dream and he understands there's some sort of connectivity, but he's now seeing a staircase that does actually reach to the heavens. We know it reaches to the heavens because of the next. Behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. These messengers of God, when I try to think of this in a picture, it's like a, a divine circulatory system. So out of heaven, these angels are coming and they're doing whatever God is asking them to do. And then as they get their assignment done, then they're coming back up. And they're these great, powerful, awe-inspiring creatures. They're not like, uh, what's the guy's name in It's a Wonderful Life? Clarence. Not like Clarence. You know, guy's still wearing his old pajamas and stuff. This, these are, whenever you see an angel, almost all the time when you see an angel in the, in the Old and New Testament, an angel comes up, and what's the first thing they have to say to the person? Don't be afraid! Why? Because I'm so powerful. Nobody's afraid of Clarence. But don't be afraid. These powerful beings are, are descending and ascending back there, making things happen. God is, God is on the move. See, Jacob thought heaven was closed off, but, but heaven's open. Heaven is moving. And Jacob just doesn't see it until he sees it in the dream. The sun may seem to have set on Jacob's life, and heaven may seem to have been closed, but, but God really is on the move. And now the third and probably the most frightening, behold. Behold the Lord. This is verse 13. And when you see this in your Bible, and the Lord is in all caps, which it is in verse 13, that's the word Yahweh. That's God's name. So the Lord himself, he's standing there right next to Jacob. He, he's descended the staircase. He's standing over Jacob. Now, imagine being Jacob right now. Jacob has deceived everyone he's known, particularly his own family. He's completely disregarded God. He doesn't even pray to God, even though he's in a desperate situation. And the Lord comes down this staircase and stands over Jacob. And here's what the Lord says. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. Now, what would you feel like? 
I mean, as the reader, what do you want to do for Jacob? Jacob, watch out! You are going to get clobbered, duck, wake up, run, you know, just want to help this poor sap out. Here, this God that he's been ignoring, the God who he's cheated the own, his own father out of a, a birthright, that God's now standing next to him, standing over him. And it's not a dream, it's a nightmare for Jacob. And yet, what does Jacob hear? It's really stunning. I mean, it's really the opposite of what you would think. Isn't that how it works so often in the Bible? What you would anticipate, then something totally different happens. Jacob, I'm going to give you this land. See, Jacob, you think you're nowhere. I know where you are. You're somewhere. And you're somewhere that, that I want you to be right now because I'm going to end up giving you this land. Jacob, verse 13, I'm with you. See, Jacob, you think you're alone. You're not alone. I'm, I'm here with you. No, no matter how far you run, no matter what you've done, I'm, I'm standing here. I, I want to be with you. Think, think just in a, in a New Testament sense. Uh, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is up in the tree. He's stolen from his own kind, his own family. He's the tax collector. Jesus comes and looks up at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus! What are you feeling like right now if you're Zacchaeus? Run, Zacchaeus! Get down! You're about ready to get clobbered. But it doesn't say... Jesus picked up a stone and threw it at Zacchaeus and knocked him out of the tree. That's not what it says. It says, Zacchaeus, come down. I, I want to be with you. It's, co it's completely opposite of what you think. Jacob, I know you think you're alone, but I want you to know you're not alone. I'm, I'm with you. And Jacob, I'm, I'm a God of promises, and I'm going to keep my promises you, you may think that heaven is closed off, that it's not doing anything, that you have to take control, but I want you to know I'm living, I'm active. I'm, I'm pumping out my orders into this world. I mean, Jacob is, is laying there, and I don't know what he might have been thinking. We get some sense of it afterwards, but... Just just the picture of the incapacity of Jacob. Here he is, he's done all these things that are deceptive, and now God's coming to him, and he hadn't done one thing. Because he's he's asleep. It's like he's dead. And that's what happens. God always makes that first move. See, see, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter how far away you've been, no matter how you've deceived even your best friends or your family, no matter how closed off heaven seems to be, no matter if you're just not somebody who prays, God's still active. God is still moving. And He's not coming after you to clobber you. He's coming out to rescue. And what we learn is that heaven is open to the worst kinds of people. I mean, when you get to Abraham, you think, well, he's got some traits probably better than I do. You get to Jacob, no traits. 
No comparisons. He's, he's the worst kind of person. And heaven's open to him. Heaven's coming towards that person. And it's possible, because I've run into these people, especially working with high school students, that some of you might say, well, yeah, but you don't know my story. Nobody here knows my story. I've tried to keep it hidden. I don't want anybody to find out what I did one time, what I thought, how I acted or reacted. No, I don't, I don't know your story. I know Jacob's story. I know he was a deceiver. I know he deceived his own family. And yet heaven was open to him. I know David, King David's story. He was a great king who used his power to commit adultery and then killed the husband and tried to cover it up. I know his story. Heaven was open to him. I know the Apostle Paul's story. He put to death the early Christians. Heaven was open to him. And the Bible tells me that murderers, adulterers, deceivers, prostitutes, liars, cheats, blasphemers, slave owners, idol worshipers, drunkards, Heaven's open to them. I know my own story. Full of these kinds of sins. Full of them. And heaven is open. So heaven is open to the worst kinds of people. And I want to ask myself, well, how do I know heaven's open? And we get the answer right away. It's because Jacob understands that the Lord has descended the staircase. See, God is, God is coming to Jacob. God is coming to me. God is coming to you. He's not standing at the, stop, at the top of the staircase saying, here are the ten things you need to do to get up the steps. Here I am. Over here, you see me? Okay, good. Now, come on. Keep Keep coming. Got to get up that step. Oh, man, you fell down a few. I don't know if you're going to make it. That's not what's happening here. Do you see what's happening? God's coming all the way down. He's taking every step down. He's standing right next to Jacob. He's not shouting out instructions. The, the good news, the gospel, is that God is coming to you. Not demanding that you have to come to Him. And that's the big difference between Christianity and religion. Typically, religion tells you, here's how you get to God. There is a heaven, here's how you get there. In Christianity, God tells you how He's coming to you. No matter how closed off heaven may seem, no matter how dark your circumstances God is coming to you and he looks at you and says, I know your whole life. I know everything you've thought. I know everything you've done. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to get you all the way home. Well, that's great for Jacob, but what about me? What about you? Jacob finds what he calls in verse 17, the gate of heaven. But how do I know the Lord is moving towards me? Where is that gate for me? You look at John chapter 1, verse 1. God tells us that he's on the move. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the verse 14, the Word became flesh and moved in, dwelt among us, came down, was the incarnation. That means in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And just later in that chapter, they're on their way to Galilee, this new group of people and Jesus, and they find this guy named Philip. And Philip believes that Jesus is the Savior, and then what does he do? Not surprisingly, he goes and finds his friend, and he says, hey, hey, I've got a friend, Nathaniel. You mind if I go find him? Sure, go find him. So he goes and finds Nathaniel, and so he says to Nathaniel, hey, we found the one. We found the one that everybody's been talking about. All the Old Testament has been pointing us to. He's finally come. And Nathan is skeptical. But out of a, a friendship, he says, okay, I'll come and see. And so they come and they're walking towards Jesus. And Jesus says, behold. Another behold. Behold Nathan or Nathaniel. Behold, I'm, I'm paying attention to you. I've got my eyes on you. And I can see that there is no deceit in you. Unlike Jacob. Nathaniel says, well, how, how do you know me? I mean, we've never met before. Yeah, I saw you underneath the fig tree. See, Jesus knows where you are. You may think you're alone. You may think you're hiding, but he knows exactly where you are. And here's what I would want to know if I were going, when, not if, gosh, please not if, when I go to heaven. I want to come and find Nathaniel and say, what were you thinking underneath the fig tree? Because you don't know. You have no idea what's happening under the fig tree. But all you know is when Jesus says, hey, remember that underneath the fig tree? Nathaniel goes, oh, underneath the fig tree. Wow. He knows what I was thinking. He was there. We don't know what was happening. But he, there was something happening that just, just Jesus saying, hey, I saw you underneath the fig tree. I was there. Just, just saying that, then Nathaniel says, you're the son of God. You're it. And Jesus, in a kind of a question, says, you come to me just because I said that. Hey, you're going, to see, you're going to see greater things, verse 50 and 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See, he's telling Nathaniel, he's telling each of us, he's the link between heaven and earth. He's the link between us and God. And notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, Nathaniel, you will see heaven and angels descending to the Son of Man. What does he say? You will see heaven and angels descending on the Son of Man. I am the staircase. I am the way. I am the way God gets to you. See, so often what we can think is, here, here's God, and here we are over here, and there's this great chasm we can't possibly cross, but, but Christ fills the chasm, and He now gives us an opportunity to get to God. No. Christ gives the opportunity for the Father to come find us lost son. I'm separated. From my lost sheep. 
I know him by name. I know her by name. But this sin is keeping me from racing out to him like the, the prodigal God. And finally, when Jesus comes and says, I'm willing to lay my life down for God to get to you. That's the gospel. And he comes and he stands over you. You don't have to take, a, you don't have to take one step. You can't take one step. You just have to say, Jesus, I can't take a step. You pick me up. You're the, you're the staircase. You're the way back. Three years later, these disciples, Philip and Nathaniel, the other, are in a room, the upper room. It's the Last Supper. And Thomas is one of the disciples there. And Jesus is looking at all the disciples and he is saying, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back. And don't be afraid because you, you know where I'm going. You know the way. And Thomas looks at him and asks the question that we probably would all ask. And he asks this question. We, we don't know the way. And what does Jesus say? When you've seen me, you've seen God. And the way for God to get to us is that Jesus takes his life and lays it down on the cross. And in an exchange that's hard for us to imagine, he offers up his body as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. So that God can get to us. And now we can, by trusting in Him, we can come to Him. So that's the gospel. That's the gospel in Genesis chapter 28. It's the gospel we see in John chapter 1. It's the gospel we see so many times. But you have to realize you can't get there on your own. You can't take a single step. You just have to trust that Christ is hovering over you, saying your name. I, I can get you all the way home. Do you trust in him alone for your salvation? He is the way. For those who have said that, this table is a reminder of the sacrifice that God made on our behalf. So we invite you to come forward. If you're still wrestling with that, we would just encourage you to sit and, and ponder the grace of God that he's done everything to come to you and that he is standing at your side today saying, I love you. I, I want you. Will you trust in me? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so upside down in our thinking that even... As Christians, we often think there's a, some ten-point plan or three-point way or we, we make this contribution and we just need to be reminded again the cross of Christ, the gospel, was your plan to get to us. So I pray for my friends here. They would be reminded of that great truth. 
that you would bless them with your nearness in these elements. For folks here who are wrestling, would they hear your voice even in this hour? The God who they've run from, the God who may they think is going to judge them, is speaking tenderly to them now. I am your God. I'm here to rescue you. May they ask for the rescue. Or take these elements and minister to us in an uncommon way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.